The parables of Jesus, aside from the Sermon on the Mount, are the most distinctive ways Jesus taught his disciples. Parables in general would have been familiar to first century disciples, along with those bystanders who were also listening to Jesus as he taught. The parables of the sower, along with the rest of the parables in chapter 13, have shaped the way we speak of growing our faith and the way we think of the kingdom of God. Something that often aids us, or at the least aids me in understanding a story or teaching, is to know what the story or teaching is and is not saying. Jesus' parables are telling us who Jesus is not. Jesus is not proclaiming the kingdom of God using either military force or coercion. Jesus is not using these stories to mount any sort of military or violent insurrection. Many of the listeners to this parable were expecting the kingdom of God to be ushered in with military force, mirroring the work that the Maccabees had previously started. Our parable this morning is not what the average listener would have been expecting. These stories are not out of reach, but not what they, not what we, expected. Next, we need to know why these simple and distinctive stories are so important. Parables provide us with tangible, real-life things to which we can compare areas of our, of our faith. Parables take the hard-to-explain parts of life and make them a bit more explainable using metaphors most of us are familiar with. Parables often hit the listener with a counterintuitive conclusion, a jab to the gut, that parallels the counterintuitive nature of the gospel, God dying for the ungodly. If these stories are so important, what are we, 21st century listeners, missing out on that the 1st century listeners would have picked up on? The metaphor used in this parable, the sowing of seeds, was a common metaphor used in the Hebrew Bible. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel in the house of Judah. That's from Jeremiah 31. So now... I am for you. I will turn to you and you shall be tilled and sowed. That's Ezekiel 36. Because Jesus is speaking to a first century Jewish audience, people who would not have had access to written copies of their sacred text. But these hearers of this teaching would have, at the very least, been familiar with the metaphors Jesus chose to use. Furthermore, as farmers, many of them would have been intimately familiar with the practice of sowing. Sowing is very different from the mechanical farming practices we use today, which is one of the reasons why there remains confusion in this text for 21st century hearers. Whereas today, farmers utilize tools like seed drills that will precisely plant seeds, the practice of sowing was less accurate. Workers would take handfuls of seeds and cast them over a prepared area. There would be some sort of effort to place the seeds where they needed to go, but this method was less than precise. Seeds would often fall onto fertile soil, prepared soil, but also at the same time would fall onto rocky and thorny grounds surrounding the fields. On the surface, parables seem to be deceptively simple. On the surface, we think we know exactly what Jesus is talking about, sowing seeds, growing our faith. On the surface, when we read this story, we are drawn to thinking about which soil we are planting the seeds of our own faith. 
Are we planting on rocky ground, hearing the word of God and then immediately jumping into action? If not that, maybe our lives are full of thorns, and upon hearing God's word, we do not fully understand what we are hearing because our lives are hostile towards God. Or maybe we think the seeds of faith we are planting are being planted with the precision of a seed drill into fertile ground to grow in faith a hundredfold. But Jesus was intentional in these stories, leaving ambiguity and confusion on the table Later in chapter 13, after Jesus has shared all of his parables, he asks his disciples, have you understood all of this? The disciples respond, yes, but we know that that is a lie. Jesus intentionally left these parables with confusion, misdirection, and today many of us who are charged with preaching on these texts are still confused and misdirected. Confusion. Misdirection. Is this story really about us? Are we the sower? The parable of the sower, though, is more so about the sower and less about how we change our lives, creating good soil where the seeds of our own faith can grow. The sower is God, and God will continue to cast seeds where God knows they will not grow or where they will grow but later be scorched. In our corporate worlds, results, increased revenues, and and all of those things increase company performance, which then increases our standing within our companies. In the church, as much as we'd hate to admit it, results are important as well. They determine which clergy are appointed where. Results determine the programs we choose to invest more financial resources into. Results also determine where we choose to allocate volunteers and staff. We are captivated by results. And that really should not be a big surprise to us as the majority of us live in a results-driven world. We want to plant seeds of faith in fertile soil. We want to help others do the same. And we spend countless hours. And let's not forget a lot of financial resources trying to help our communities do this. We record and track attendance and engagement. We produce reports. We study statistics, all trying to figure out the secret recipe for good soil. But if we read this parable closely, is that really what's going on? Is that what this story is all about? While we are captivated by results, God is not. If we read this parable closely, we realize that God is sowing seeds, casting out love and grace to all of us. Love and grace that we all need in our lives. The love and grace of God we need to establish our faith. God is doing that indiscriminately. God knows, even even when we pretend otherwise, that when the seeds of love and grace, the seeds that establish deep roots of faith, that some seeds will not establish the roots necessary for a bountiful harvest. God knows this, and still the sower continues to sow the fields. God knows our hostility towards the gospel, and still the sower sows the field. God continues to bless us, Christ's church, all the while knowing that our agendas, predispositions with results and results-driven ministries will cause some of the seeds to burn up or to be eaten by the birds. But you're asking yourself, how are we hostile towards the gospel? 
oftentimes we fail to listen to and we forget to hear God's word because like Pharaoh, our hearts are hardened. We are unable to discern God's calling on our lives. We are unable to see the love and grace being sown into our lives because the gospel is counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive to to the world that we are living in. The early church faced this problem. We are not alone today. Paul said this in Rome, For this, people's heart has grown dull, and their hearts are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes, so that they might look not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn. We live in a time when many Christians, primarily in the United States, argue that the world has become hostile towards the gospel, from removing things like the Ten Commandments from public squares and courtrooms and banning students from openly praying in schools. Sidebar here, if we are truly praying the way Jesus instructs us to in Matthew 6, praying in secret, can that really ever be banned from schools? Back, back to Sundays no longer being observed as the Sabbath in our communities. There really is a strong argument to be made in defense of the position that we as communities have become hostile towards the gospel. But if we take a deeper look at what Jesus is speaking of, we see that Jesus is not speaking in generalities. He's being specific. He's talking about you and me. He's not talking about us or we. We allow the superficiality of our lives and the vested interest we have in wealth, self-promotion, and prosperity to harden our hearts, hardening the ground around us. We are motivated by greed, even when our best intentions tell us otherwise. And still, the sower continues to sow. We fail to see God's love for us. We fail to see God's love for those around us. And we fail to see God's love for those who we deem unlovable. We read this parable and think that we are the sower, sowing seeds in our own lives as well as the lives of those around us. We think at times that we are in control of our own justification and thus our own salvation. We think we can control whether or not we are sanctified before God and that we can do likewise for those around us. This parable, though, tells us otherwise. This parable tells us that in the face of our own best efforts and failings, God is still sowing. God is sowing seeds so that we will be liberated from the evil one. Sowing seeds is God's work of liberating us from a captor. There's more at stake than just our faith, growing in grace and being acceptable to God. God sows in the face of an enemy. God knows there's competition for our hearts and still the sower sows. None of this is up to us to do on our own, though. The task of sowing seeds has not been left up to the church. Changing the soil seeds are sown sown into is not something we can do on our own. The work of sowing seeds has always been and will never stop being God's work. We participate in this work as individuals and as a community, trusting that God will work in and through us individually and collectively. Because once we have faith and are baptized into new life through Christ, we are Christ's regardless of what your soil seems. Amen and amen.